Go ahead and take a seat. If you're new with us this morning, my name is Landon, and I'm the pastor here at Restoration Church, and thankful to get to, to spend time with you this morning. Last week, I joked that you didn't want to meet me last week because I was sick. I still don't recommend meeting me this week because I'm still kind of sick, so hopefully the next week. But Nate's a great guy, so you should get to know him. Um, I don't think I have any announcements either, do I, Nate? That's wonderful. I like that. However, if you are new, uh, we'd love for you to fill out a Get Connected card. That way I can meet you when I'm, I'm healthy and not coughing. That way you don't get sick. Uh, there's a Get Connected card in the seat back in front of you. We'd love for you to, to fill that out, set up a coffee or lunch, and, and just have the opportunity to, to get to know each other, to tell you a little bit more about the church, and see how we can be praying for you. So with that said, we are going to open up to Mark chapter 1. We're going to start a new series today uh, in the book of Mark. We just finally finished our four-week vision series that turned into like an eight-week vision series. And so we're going to start Mark this morning. Uh, before we do that, though, I, I am curious if you've ever taken time to think through the implications of defining a relationship of thinking about the boundaries, the expectations, the, the roles that different people play in different relationships, from marriages to working relationships to, to parent-to-child relationships. I think about how often my children try to define the relationship with me. Normally, that comes in the form of a temper tantrum, right? Like they start crying, screaming, yelling, hitting, doing whatever they do, and in that moment... What they're actually trying to do is define the relationship. They are trying to be in control in a moment where they need me to be in control, actually. And so we're determining what's going to happen. We're setting the boundaries, the expectations. We're saying this is how it's going to work. And if we do that, there will be health in the relationship. It's funny. I can't do this in, in public. It would probably not go well. But if I'm just in my house and every once in a while, not often, but every once in a while, one of the kids will have just a crazy temper tantrum, like screaming, hitting, throwing, like just crazy, right? These are like three-year-olds, four-year-olds, five-year-olds. And sometimes when that happens, I'll just like play out the scenario with them. I'll say, hey, listen, I think you need to scream a little bit louder. No, really, like right now, scream louder because if it's just a little bit louder, I think I'll then understand your point, and I'll change my mind. And it's, it's crazy. I just had this idea. I'd try this one day. They stop. Like, they just stop because they know, oh, screaming's not going to work. So we define the relationship. And marriage, it's similar. If a marriage exists for itself, or if the individuals, the couple in the marriage, be begin to think about the wins, the goals in individual terms, I want this, she wants that, versus what are we pursuing together? If you've not defined that, there's always going to be discord and unhealth. It's just how it's going to work. In working relationships, if an employee thinks he knows how to do the job better than the employer, it's not going to go well. When we've not defined relationships, relationships don't go well. As we begin our study through the book of Mark, we need to understand that the reason Mark wrote this work that we'll call a gospel is actually to define our relationship for us or to help us define it with Jesus. That's the whole reason this book exists. And Mark's going to cover that 
in the very first few words. What, what Mark's actually going to do is clarify for us so that there's no room for, for questioning who Jesus was and is, who he came to be and what he came to do, so that there's no question. All that is left is a decision of what our relationship with Jesus is going to be like, how it's going to be defined. The, the circumstances as Mark writes this, uh, this, this letter, this, this work, this gospel, are that his father figure, Peter, has just died a martyr's death, or was about to, one of the two. Mark writes this while he's in Rome, most likely, either very quickly after or before his father figure, Peter, is killed because of the name of Jesus. So, so a guy that actually, his, his mom is a widow, and so his, his father's not been in the picture for who knows how long, loses his father figure because of the name of Jesus. He's in Rome where the emperor proclaims a divinity and requires to be worshipped. Peter has just been killed, and Mark still is going to write this about Jesus. Children don't have parents because of the gospel of Jesus Christ, but Mark is going to write this because it's that important for people to know who Jesus is and to define their relationship with him. I, uh, I used to, when, when I'd read books, hate the introduction or the prologue. I don't know about you. I like to just like accomplish things and get them done, so that just seems like a waste of time. Let's just start with chapter one. But as I've read more and I, I learned, those have actually become my favorite parts because you actually get to know the author and his intent, and, and your reading becomes so much more rich, uh, and there's more power in understanding if you understand the, the author's heart and intent and style before chapter one. And so Mark 1 through 8 or kind of 13 is the introduction to this gospel. But the very first sentence is going to set the whole stage. It's going to tell you everything you actually need to know for the entire 20-something pages that this gospel is. And that's what we're going to spend the majority of our time looking at this morning. Let's go ahead and read it. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. This word gospel is, is one that the church Christians use a lot. I don't know what comes to mind when you hear the word gospel. Maybe it's like gospel music. Maybe gospel is equivalent with Christian. I, I don't know what comes to mind when you hear the word gospel, but it's important for us to take some time to actually define gospel and it has both Hebrew and Greek origin, but we're going to talk about the, the Greek origin. And it comes from a compound word in the Greek that is euangelion. looks like this. Eu means good, and angelion means announcement. And so the word gospel means good announcement. So here we read the beginning of the gospel, the beginning of the good announcement about Jesus who is the Christ, the Son of God. Now, here's the thing about the announcement. It wasn't just any announcement. Uh, I don't know why this came to mind this morning, but it's not like me telling you my dog died. My dog didn't die. But, like, it's bigger. It's not personal. It's not individual. It's not even communal. It's like a national, global announcement. It has to be incredibly significant that everyone needs to know. That's the type of announcement. And, and good is really about perspective. It's almost like when a team wins a game, that's good news for them, 
but it's bad news for the team that lost, right? Good announcement. Often the announcement was that a battle was won, which also means a battle was lost, or that a king, a new king was taking the throne, which means either the old king died or was overthrown. Again, you start to see how good is about perspective with this significant and royal announcement. Now, what was the context of Mark writing this letter? Peter, his father figure, was just killed because of the name of Jesus. Actually, because of the good, you, Angelion news about Jesus. He was killed because the good news was not good news in everybody's mind. The emperor, Caesar, who proclaims to be divine, doesn't like it when Jesus comes along and says that he is going to be the king of the world. When Peter proclaims the good news, the euangelion, that Jesus will reign as king, Peter is killed. Good news is really dependent on the circumstances. Have you ever thought about why Jesus came to earth? We, we often use this phrase that's really like a partial truth. I want to talk about it for a minute. Like Jesus is your personal Lord and Savior. Is that true? You're just saying he is good. He will never let you down. You are my king. It's good. But did he come to be your personal Lord and Savior? I'm going to say no partially, but he came to be king of the world. Now, he will be your king and your savior in that, but he didn't come just to be privately in your bedroom or your church location or however you think about things, your personal Lord and Savior. He came to be the king of the world and to be the savior of all. There's a difference there. That's why Mark is willing to write this gospel, this good news even though people were dying for it. Because the world needed to know that Jesus was and will be king forever. Now, I want to go ahead and fast forward to Mark chapter uh, 15. I want to read this to you just so we have total clarity on why Jesus died. Have you ever taken time to think about why Jesus actually was killed? Well, let's go ahead and look at what happens towards the end of this, this writing. Then the soldiers led him, Jesus, away into the courtyard and called the whole company together. They dressed him in a purple, which is royal robe, twisted together a crown of thorns and smashed it on his head and put it on him. And they began to salute him, mocking him, yelling or proclaiming, Hail, King of the Jews. Like, there's very specific reason why Jesus is about to be executed. Because he is proclaiming to be God. He is proclaiming to be the Savior and proclaiming that he will be the king over the whole world. And so they mock him and beat him and spit in his face. We continue to read. They kept hitting him on the head with a reed and spitting on him. Getting down on their knees, they were paying him homage, mocking him. When they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple robe, put his clothes on him, and led him out to crucify him. Saying, you're no king. You might be proclaiming this, but you are no king. Let's get that straight right now. They forced a man coming in from the country who was passing by to carry Jesus' cross. He was Simon, 
a Cyrenian, the father of Alexander, and Rufus. And they brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means skull place. They tried to give him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. Then they crucified him and divided his clothes, casting lots for them to decide what each would get. Now it was nine in the morning when they crucified him. The inscription of the charge written against him as he's hanging, being executed on a cross with his crown of thorns. And what does it say? The king of the Jews. There can be absolutely no question, no, there's no gray area about why Jesus was killed. He was killed because of who he claimed to be. That is the only reason. There was no other reason for him to be murdered except that he claimed to be Jesus, the Christ, Messiah, Son of God, the King. And what's crazy about this is that they mocked him, saying, you are not the king. Here's a crown of thorns. Let us beat you. Look, he saved others, but he can't save himself. And he did that all for our sake because he died. But then after three days later, what he, after three days, what he showed is that there is no power, no sin, no sickness, no disease, not Satan, no demonic power, not even death itself has authority over the name of Jesus because he rose again. And he rose again for our sake after living the perfect life, after sacrificing himself. He rose again to say and proclaim so there would be no question. I am king. And he's coming again. The beginning of the gospel. You, Angelia, good news. It's not good news for everybody. It's not good news if you're trying to be your own king. Because then you can't be a part of his kingdom. The good News, the beginning of the gospel. All right, we've made it like four words now through the book of Mark. So the series might take a while. I'm not sure how long, but we'll see. It will be more than four weeks, though. I can promise that. The beginning of the gospel, let's move on to the fifth and sixth word, of Jesus. Jesus is the next key word here. Jesus is a real person. No person in the, the course of human history, like you could believe Jesus is fake, but you're here today because of Jesus. That's wild. This is the, the most read, bought, printed book, hands down, because of the name of Jesus. Look at verse 9. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth and Galilee and was baptized in the Jordan by John. Often he's referred to as Jesus of Nazareth. That's important. And here's why. Because it means he's a real person, a real human being that came from a real place called Nazareth. People knew him when he grew up as a boy and when he went from crawling to walking because he was human just like us. He walked like us and talked like us except in a different language and listened and, and he needs to eat food and drink water and breathe oxygen and he got sick and he journeyed through life like we do. He was human like us. Not just like us because he was perfect but he was human fully like we are. We can't move past that. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus, 
who is human the way we were made to be. He didn't come just to save us from our sin and to die and pay a penalty to be the substitute for us. He came to rise again <coughs> so that we could know what life was meant for, what it was supposed to be like and what it will be like. The beginning of the gospel, the euangelion of Jesus of Nazareth, who is the Christ. Okay, Jesus Christ. Again, this is not first name and last name. It's not like Landon Myers. Jesus is his name. He's of Nazareth. He's fully human. Christ, though, is a title. It's like CEO or president. Jesus, who is the, Christ means Messiah or Savior. Not first name, last name. Jesus the Christ. He is the Savior, the one who is to come. Since we all know the world need, needs help, needs saving, that is obvious. Jesus is the one who's going to do that. The beginning of the good news, the gospel of Jesus, who is the Christ, the next phrase is this, the Son of God. Now Mark's going to spend the next four or five verses explaining Son of God. Let's, let's take a look. Here's what we read in verse 2. The Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, we actually uh, proclaimed this together earlier. Look, I am sending my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way for who? The Lord. Anytime you see the, the four letters, L-O-R-D, capitalized in your Bible, the translation is probably the word Yahweh, God. So this means not just any generic God, not just somebody, but specifically the God named Yahweh. So there's no confusion. Prepare the way for Yahweh. Make his paths straight. Okay, now we read verse 4. John came baptizing in the wilderness and preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Isaiah says, look, I am sending my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. John came baptizing in the wilderness. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem were flocking to him and they were baptized by him in the Jordan River as they confessed their sins. John wore a camel hair garment and a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. The, the reason Mark includes this is because that gives us a picture of another prophet, Elijah, who lived in the wilderness, who ate like John the Baptist ate, and who dressed like John the Baptist dressed. If you look at your Bible, the, the book of Matthew is right before the book of Mark. And right before that, I don't know what your Bible looks like. There might be like one page in between the Old and New Testament. Here's my page. It says the New Testament. And that page represents a period of time of like 400 years of silence. Have you ever experienced a season where it feels like God isn't speaking? Where you're crying out because you need something? And you go, God, where are you? God was silent. 400 years before John the Baptist started preaching. No prophet spoke. And then this one, looking like the prophets of old, wearing what the prophets wore, eating what the prophets ate, coming from where the prophets came, begins to preach a message. God is now speaking again for the first time, not in like a month, but 400 years. And people are flocking to hear him because finally God is speaking Look, I am sending my messenger ahead of you. John is that messenger. 
This is a quote from Isaiah chapter 40. I want to go ahead and uh, read actually all of Isaiah chapter 40 together. It's pretty long, but I think it's going to be worth it. Uh, it's going to come in a few different sections, and as I, I read it, I'll start to explain it. But know this, Mark is quoting this prophet Isaiah to set the whole stage for this work, this gospel, this good news that he's proclaiming, even though people are dying for it. We read this. God is speaking, and he says, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and announce to her that her time of forced labor is over. Her iniquity has been pardoned, and she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice of one crying out. This should sound familiar. Prepare the way of the Lord in the wilderness. Make a straight highway for who? Our God in the desert. Each valley will be lifted up, and every mountain and hill will be leveled. The uneven ground will become smooth, and the rough places a plain. And what? The glory of the Lord, Yahweh, will appear, and all humanity together will see it, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So who is coming? One is to proclaim and to prepare the people for Yahweh himself to come and be with the people. The, the context of Isaiah is that the, the people of God have been through a lot. They've been beaten and bruised. They've been taken as captives. They've had returns and exiles, and it's still just not going well. That's why they need comfort, because life is not the way it's meant to be for them. So they need comforting. And one is a messenger to say comfort is coming. And the one to come is God himself. And the glory of the Lord will appear. And all humanity together will see it. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice was saying, cry out. Another said, what should I cry out? All humanity is grass. And all its goodness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers. The flowers fade. When the breath of the Lord blows on them, indeed, the people are grass. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God remains forever. He doesn't change. He is in control. Zion, herald of good news, gospel. Go up on a high mountain. Jerusalem, herald of good news, raise your voice loudly. Raise it. Do not be afraid. Say to the cities of Judah. Notice this isn't personal. This isn't like, hey, send a text message to each individual so they can just, in their own private little sphere, be good with Jesus. This is make a public proclamation. Here is your God. See, the Lord God comes with strength. And his power establishes his rule. His reward is with him. And his gifts accompany him. He protects his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them in the fold of his garments. He gently leads those that are nursing. Now we're going to compare God to anybody else. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand or marked off the heavens with the span of his hand? Who has gathered the dust of the earth in a measure or weighed the mountains in a balance and the hills in the scales? Who has directed the spirit of the Lord? Or who gave him his counsel? Who did he consult with? Who gave God understanding and taught him the paths of justice? Who taught God knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Look, the nations are like a drop in a bucket. Any 
world leader, president, king, power, throughout all of time is like a drop in a bucket compared to Jesus. Look, the nations are like a drop in a bucket. They're considered a speck of dust in the scales. He lifts up the islands like fine dust. Lebanon is not enough for fuel or its animals enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are considered by him as nothingness and emptiness. Who will you compare God with? What likeness will you compare him to? To an idol? Something that a smelter casts and a metal worker plates with gold and makes silver welds for it? To one who shapes a pedestal, choosing wood that does not rot, he looks for a skilled craftsman to set up an idol that will not fall over. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Isaiah is proclaiming this to the people of Israel. I proclaim it to you. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been declared to you from the beginning? Have you not considered the foundations of the earth? God is enthroned above the circle of the earth. Its inhabitants are like the grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like thin cloth and spreads them out like a tent to live in. What, what, the, what the author, what the prophet is proclaiming is really good news if Jesus is your king. It's really bad news if Jesus is not your king. He reduces princes to nothing and makes judges of the earth irrational. They are barely planted, barely sown. Their stem hardly takes root in the ground. When he blows on them and they wither, and a whirlwind carries them away like stubble. Who will you compare me to? Or who is my equal? Asks the Holy One. Look up and see who created these. He brings out the starry host by number. He calls all of them by name. He knows every single star. Every single person. Every single story. Every single moment. Because of his great power and strength, not one of them is missing. Jacob, why do you say, and Israel, why do you assert, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my claim is ignored by my God? Do you not know, have you not heard, Yahweh is the everlasting God, the creator of the whole earth. He never grows faint or weary. There is no limit to his understanding. He gives strength to the weary and strengthens the powerless. Youths may faint and grow weary, and young men stumble and fall. But those who trust in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not faint. This happened a long time before Jesus came. This prophecy that there would be a messenger to prepare the way for Yahweh himself. Now let me reread the beginning of Mark so that we have understanding about what Mark is saying. His father figure just died. There's children without parents because of this gospel. And here's what Mark says. The beginning of the gospel, the euangelion, the good news of Jesus of Nazareth, who is the Christ and the Messiah, the Son of God, Yahweh himself walking amongst us in human form. Not just like us, because he's human the way we were made to be. He shows us the way. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, look, 
I am sending my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one crying out in where? The wilderness. Prepare the way for the Lord. Make his path straight. As it so happens, John came baptizing from where? In the wilderness. And preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem were flocking to him. And they were baptized by him in the Jordan River as they confessed their sins. Because God is speaking after 400 years. John wore a camel hair garment with a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. He was the prophet to come. He was preaching. Now what did John say? As he prepares the way with his message, someone more powerful than I will come after me. I am not worthy. I am not worthy to stoop down and untie the strap of his sandals. There were servants in this day and age, and to stoop down and untie the straps of sandals, and then to wash the feet of the guests in the home was the job of the servants. And John the Baptist is saying, I am not worthy to do the servant's job for Jesus. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit because he has the Spirit to give because he is God. He is Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God, the King. That's a pretty heavy introduction. Mark says, here you go. I'm going to present to you who Jesus is so there can be no question. There's only one reason that he was killed. And now you get to decide. Now you get to define your relationship with him. Okay, we're, we're almost done here. As I read this week, as I, as I prayed, as I thought about this, I was really convicted personally. Because when I read the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who lived, came in the way he was made to be, who died, who then rose again, who is my Savior but didn't come to just be my Savior, who is and will be the King of the earth, I don't know if I've defined my relationship with him properly. Like, do you stop and breathe and quit worrying about the little things in your life? They feel like big things, but they're like grass that withers because he is unending, because he is good unconditionally and for all of time. Do you stop? And think about the gospel, the good news of Jesus of Nazareth, who is the Christ and the Messiah, the Son of God. Like you can actually talk with Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God, who princes have no authority over, who presidents have no authority over, who kings and dictators for all of time, who Satan has no authority over, who sickness and disease and death has no authority over. You can talk and be United with him through the power of the Holy Spirit. Do you ever stop? In the midst of your life. To go, who is this Jesus and how do I relate to him? My guess is, if you're anything like me. 
though this is the most important relationship we have, hands down, this relationship with Jesus, that we've not taken time to adequately define the relationship. And there's no greater thing we must do. Look at how John defines the relationship. I am not worthy to stoop down and untie the strap of his sandals. I want us to, to take a minute as we close our time together and just think. I'm going to give you a, a minute to define. Think about how you have defined, maybe more so past tense, your relationship with Jesus. If you have a, a pen or paper, you can do it on that. You can text yourself a note. Do whatever you want to do. If you can write this, though, I think it would be better. I just text myself. But write this out, these three words. Jesus defines my, and then I don't want you to think. I'm going to give you like 30 seconds to a minute. Whether you write one thing down or five things down or ten, really quickly, without coming up with the right spiritual answer, because that's not real. Jesus defines my what? Go. I'm going to give you like 30 seconds to a minute. I think there's a, a few different categories of how we might define Jesus. I, I think a common one is Jesus is my ticket to heaven. So I've invited him into my heart to be my Lord and Savior, and then I'm good. I'm not going to go to hell. I'm going to go to heaven. Jesus is my ticket. Now, another way is maybe you just think Jesus isn't real. That could be a way you define it, or isn't God, or maybe he's just some good guy. Neither of those fit at all with what Mark is saying, what is true about Jesus. I think a really common one is that we treat Jesus kind of like a genie. When something's going wrong, then we want to be close with Jesus. Or if we want something or need something, then we come to Jesus. That's not the same as saying Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Or is Jesus the one true God? who came down as a human, lived a perfect life, gave up his life to show us that he conquers all things, not just empires, but death, sin, and Satan as well. And he is Lord and Savior, meaning my whole life belongs to this Jesus. Like, What are the things that captivate you? What are the good things that have become God things in your world? you're speaking of, the almighty God of the universe. Nate had, had picked a song to sing before we talked about uh, this, this sermon, and it's the song, Let My Words Be Few, and um, I was really glad he picked that song, because sometimes there's no response, and, and the scriptures tell us this. Sometimes we, we won't have the words to pray or to say, and the Spirit actually will on our behalf, but sometimes I I don't have the words to say when I read this. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus, who is the Christ, the Son of God, who loves you 
who did die for you to proclaim himself as king over the entire world. Sometimes there's nothing to say but just to worship. And that's what we're going to do now as, as Nate and the band come up. If you need help processing, defining the relationship with Jesus, I'd love to help. Nate would. Any of our elders or team uh, would love to help with that. I'm going to close our time with this last quote. Which, uh, before I read it, it actually comes from a book called The Gospel Primer. And uh, each of our communities here at Restoration Church are, are going through this, this program we call piloting. It's the launching of our communities. It's getting on the same page of what we believe, of what it means to practice the way of Jesus, of supporting and loving one another. And this quote comes from that book. It says this, The gospel of Christ is inherently a missionary gospel. It is a message that changes a life, changes a course, changes affections, changes values, changes worldview, changes love, changes loyalty, and should change either our giving or our going, or both. But the gospel cannot leave you as you are, the way you are, and where you are, or it cannot possibly be the gospel you have received. As we continue to worship, we'll respond and worship by taking communion by knowing that he is good no matter what and because of that we can take of the bread and dip it into the cup remembering that he gave up his life but that he rose again to know that Jesus the Christ the son of God is with you and for you and by the power of the Holy Spirit you are united with him so if you are a, a follower of Jesus please feel free to come forward and, and partake of communion whether that's individually Maybe it's with your community here or a family member. Come and take communion knowing Jesus the Christ, the Son of God, is with you and for you. Uh, we also respond in worship by, by giving. So if you would like to give, there's a box for giving in the back of the room. Or there's instructions on how you can give uh, in the brown little 3 by 5 card or smaller card in front of you in the seat. Giving is one of the ways that we say you are the Christ, the Son of God. You are our Savior. And so we want to align all of ourselves, including our, our finances, with you. So let's continue now to worship in our response.